Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today, we're in part two of our three-part series. We're discussing the Eightfold Path and we're breaking it into the three individual sections that make up the wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. This is the path to enlightenment. This is the path that's going to help you train the mind to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. This is the path that the Buddha laid out as part of his teachings over 2,500 years ago, and his teachings are timeless. Because he taught about the natural laws of existence, what he taught 2,500 years ago applies today, and by learning, reflecting, and practicing those teachings, you can see the condition of the mind gradually improve significantly and then ultimately completely eliminating discontentedness of the mind because what he taught were the natural laws of existence those natural laws haven't changed from the buddha's lifetime 2500 years ago until today but the challenge is is that because of impermanence things constantly changing in terms of written documents and books and people's recollection and memory and the oral tradition that the quality of the teachings and the clarity of the teachings has degraded. But when you go back to his original source teachings and you see what he actually taught, you can see the crispness and the clarity in his actual words and what he taught. And you don't believe those words, but instead you learn them, reflect on them, and practice them. In this program, we're using this book, Volume 1, from the book series, The Words of the Buddha. It's titled, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In this book, there are the words of the Buddha, and then there's my words explaining it. And then there's an additional several volumes, goes all the way up to 13 volumes, which mainly focus on the words of the Buddha and making sure that we go back to what he actually taught during his lifetime, because by doing that, we can see more clearly what was it that he was actually sharing that leads to enlightenment. And then by you learning, reflecting, and practicing those teachings, you will see the truth for yourself as you acquire more and more wisdom, and you improve your life practice, and you develop this life practice, making wiser and wiser choices, you will see the improvement to the condition of the mind and the condition of your life. So thank you all for being here for this second part of our program, the second part of this class, where we're going to be laying out the entire Eightfold Path in three separate classes. I would like to move into sharing with you just kind of a little recap of what we talked about last week 
just a very minor, minor recap to help you so that will help you in today's class. What we talked about last week was right view and right intention. This makes up the wisdom of part of the Eightfold Path. Right view was those three universal truths in the Four Noble Truths. Remember the universal truth of impermanence, the universal truth of discontentedness, and the universal truth of non-self. Universal truth of impermanence is teaching about how everything's constantly changing. There isn't this permanent fixed objects around us, our car, our relationships, our body, our jobs, our dwelling, our residence, everything that we have around us is constantly changing. There's only two things that are actually permanent. Enlightenment itself, once you attain enlightenment, it's permanent and the natural laws of existence. That's why what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago applies today because he taught these natural laws of existence and they haven't changed from 2,500 years ago. So enlightenment itself and the natural laws of existence are permanent, but everything else is pretty much impermanent. And when you understand that, then you can start to understand the universal truth of discontentedness these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, like the pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, painful feelings, sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, neither painful nor pleasant, things like boredom, loneliness, shyness, unsatisfactory, uncomfortable. This is what the unenlightened mind experiences because it's basing its feelings on some impermanent condition. I got a new job. Oh, I'm so happy. Oh, I got fired or I got laid off my job. So angry, so sad. Because that condition of the job is what's creating the inner feelings, first pleasant feelings. Then when you no longer have that condition met, then the mind experiences the painful feelings. So what this path is all about is helping you to see that through the Four Noble Truths that each individual being is causing their own discontentedness. We cause the pleasant feelings, we cause the painful feelings, and we cause the neither painful nor pleasant. And it's based on this craving desire attachment, the mental longing, the yearning, the strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection. We chase that new pair of shoes and we just think that new pair of shoes is going to create this lasting fulfillment in the mind. You get the new pair of shoes, you experience the temporary happiness, but then it fades. And then when the shoes get older, maybe you feel bored with those shoes or you're angry because somebody damaged them or you lost them. So you get frustrated or you chase after the objects of your affection in terms of sex or drugs or maybe a new pet for your home or a new job and the mind is always longing and yearning and thinking that the object that's just around the corner is going to finally fulfill the mind it's that next shiny object it's going to finally fulfill the mind so it chases after these pleasant feelings once it acquires what it's chasing it experiences temporary pleasant feelings but then those wear off 
or if you don't get the objects of your affection, then you experience those painful feelings. And this is just a constant cycle of the mind chasing after the objects of its affection and either getting it, experiencing pleasant feelings, or not getting it and experiencing painful feelings. And what this whole path is about is eliminating that cycle, that constant cycle of discontentedness that the mind experiences happiness, excitement, bored, lonely, sad, angry, oh, thrilled, euphoria, oh, frustrated, annoyed, oh, guilt, shame, uh, shyness, unsatisfactory, uncomfortable, and the mind just keeps bouncing around. This is what the unenlightened mind does because it lacks the wisdom of how to train it in order to have this moral conduct and mental discipline. So right view is all about acknowledging and understanding that it's craving desire attachment in the unenlightened mind that's causing all these discontent feelings. And when you understand that, that's very empowering because then you can take steps to eliminate those discontent feelings by understanding that you're causing the discontent feelings, not as you're at fault or you've done anything wrong, it's just the way the unenlightened, untrained mind functions. So by understanding that and accepting the responsibility for this mind, now you can take active steps along this entire path to enlightenment to now actively learn, reflect, and practice teachings to train the mind to eliminate all of these discontent feelings. So someone with right view will understand and be able to observe any time that your mind is discontent, it's being caused by craving desire attachment. And the Buddha calls this the breakthrough. Once you learn right view and you're fully practicing it and you can see very clearly that it's your own craving desire attachment that's leading to your discontentedness, you have broken through. Because prior to that, we typically go around and we blame everyone else for our discontentedness. When we're angry, we blame someone else or we blame the situation. Or when we're lonely or bored, we'll blame somebody else. Or if we feel guilt or shame, we will oftentimes blame other people. But when you have right view and you're not practicing this wrong view, this right view is, I have the right view here. It's craving desire attachment that's causing this discontentedness. So let me fix it. Then you move into right intention which is practicing the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. The intention of renunciation or the intention of relinquishment is setting the intention of letting go. Because in right view, you learn that holding on and craving is what's causing the problem, then transforming that, you have to set the intention of letting go that I'm not going to hold on to these feelings. I'm not going to hold on to these decisions all the time. I'm not going to hold on to my false perceptions or my false beliefs. I'm not going to hold on to all this stuff. I'm going to train this mind to let go and relinquish all this craving, desire, attachment. Then the second aspect of right intention is training the mind and having the intention to train the mind to practice non-ill will or goodwill essentially loving kindness, practicing loving kindness, which we're going to get into when we're in chapter 14. We're going to talk more about that and a little bit about it today. 
then there's this intention of harmlessness, not being interested to harm other beings. And this is really, really, really important as we move into talking about moral conduct today. Because if the intention in the mind is to harm, even through a little bit of sarcasm, that harm that you put out is going to come back to you. And you're going to see that more clearly today. So this is a bit about what we talked about last week. And in order to talk about moral conduct, let's talk about the natural law of gamma. Because in order to understand this entire path that the Buddha laid out for us and shared with us, you need to understand the natural law of gamma. Now in chapter 9, when we get to that point in the book, we're going to be exploring the natural law of gamma in depth. But right here, I would like to just introduce it to you to a certain degree so that you'll understand how all the rest of the teachings that the Buddha shared is based around this natural law of gamma or these natural laws of existence. All too often, people think that the natural law of gamma or karma is this mystical, magical thing, and it's really not. And sometimes people think that it's about punishment or rewards, and it's really not that at all. All it is is cause and effect, or action and result. Essentially, the results of your decisions. If you practice wholesome moral conduct, for example, and wholesome mental discipline, which we're going to be talking about next week, then because you're practicing wholesomeness, wholesomeness will come back to you. Where if you're practicing in an unwholesome way, then unwholesome things will come back to you. Another way to say that is if you're putting out harm in the world through your speech, through your actions, through your livelihood, then that's going to come back to you. So if you're aggressive and hostile, the way that you go around speaking to your life partner, your children, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, your boss, unwholesome things are going to happen for you, right? If you're disrespectful and impolite to your coworkers or your boss, you're probably going to get fired at some point. But conversely, if you speak in a wholesome way, then more and more opportunities are going to open up for you because more and more people in your professional career are going to be interested in working with you. You'll probably get promoted. You'll probably get salary increases. You'll probably get more interesting and engaging projects to work on at work. So this cause and effect or action and result, it's a natural law. It's always happening. Whether you know that it's there or not, it's just like the natural law of gravity. When you were three years old, you didn't know anything about the natural law of gravity, but it still affected you. And the same thing here is that with the natural law of gamma, it's there and it's affecting you whether you know about it or not. But once you know about it and you understand it in detail, then you can start making your decisions through the wisdom of this natural law and now by you improving your decision making through wise, wholesome decisions, now wholesome things will start happening for you more and more as a result of your moral conduct, as a result of your mental discipline, as a result of this wisdom and you making wiser and wiser choices in the world, then you will experience better and better results. Because essentially, it's your life, it's your decisions, and it produces your results. 
this natural law of gamma or this karma that people talk about i use the word gamma because that is the pali language that's the original source language of the buddhist teachings this natural law of gamma it's not mystical magical it's not a black cloud following you around it's not somebody dishing out punishment and rewards but if you came from a tradition or a belief that that's what's actually happening you're going to have to relinquish that belief and look at the truth in reality that's what the buddhist teachings are all about is helping you see very clearly what is the truth well if you look at anything that's happened for you in your life that's turned out wholesome or turned out good it's because of your wholesome decisions that created those wholesome results for you and any problems or any issues or any challenges that you're facing any kind of problematic situations that you're experiencing in life it's all a result of your decisions so once again going back to right view if we accept and we understand and we can see very clearly that there is no such thing as random events in our life that everything that we're experiencing is as a result of our wholesome or unwholesome decisions if we go back to right view and we accept that and we see it very clearly not just believe it but you see it very clearly now it's just a matter of improving your wisdom improving your moral conduct and improving your your mental discipline that you will then see that you'll make wiser and wiser decisions in the world and thus improve the condition of your life because we're causing all of the problems in our life we can actually fix all the problems in our life that's the beauty of this whereas if we practice wrong view and it's everyone else's fault that we're experiencing the things that we experience in our life then we got to go around and train everyone else to do things our way and there's 7.5 billion people in the world that's an enormous training program that we have to implement across the world and good luck with that or what the buddha is saying is you can just train one being and do you know who that being is that you have to train there's just one you don't have to train 7.5 billion people you only have to train one so you've got to train this mind this being and when you do and you can see these natural laws of existence very clearly and you gain this wisdom of the buddhist teachings now you can make better and better choices so today we're going to be talking about right speech right action and right livelihood to help you see the wisdom of this natural law because the entire eightfold path is essentially exposing you to the natural law of gamma so when we talk about right speech they're not commandments they're not rules to follow they're not sins none of that stuff applies here whatsoever instead what you're getting from the buddha is guidance you're getting guidance that hey if you're interested in eliminating all the unwholesome things in your life and getting to a really peaceful calm mind where you can be joyful here's the guidance of how to do that and it's up to each person to decide whether or not they're going to actually learn and reflect and practice that so there's actually nobody here that's punishing you or rewarding you for anything that you're doing if anything at all we punish ourselves because if you decide to go out into the world and talk harshly and then people talk harsh to you you just punished yourself didn't you nobody punished you nobody did that to you 
It's when we speak harshly or aggressive to others that that's then going to come back to us. But conversely, when we gain the wisdom of these teachings and you start understanding right speech, right action, and right livelihood and depth, and you start practicing that, then now you put out this wholesome speech to all the beings around you on a consistent, ongoing basis. And now you're going to find your life partner speaks to you differently. Your children speaks to you differently. Your coworkers, your neighbor, your siblings, your parents. The more and more that you're speaking in a wholesome way to others, this is what will return to you. But it's all based on your decisions. It's not based on you training other people to speak to you nicely. It's you choosing to improve your life practice and develop your life practice that you put more wholesomeness out into the world. So therefore, that's what comes back to you. So we're going to take a moment to accept questions here before we move into the individual steps that we're going to talk about today, because I would like to see if there's any questions around the natural law of gamma before we embark on the rest of this journey to learn about the Eightfold Path. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll turn things over to James, Manal, Bassam, Nick, whoever's moderating today, and see what questions you guys have. Hi, David. As we go into today's class, we studied right view last week. And what are we looking at today? Is this like a way to enhance our right view as we learn? This is how to build upon your right view. So once you have right view and you realize that it's you causing all the challenges and issues in your life, then the next question becomes, well, how do I clean it up? Because if you have wrong view and you think everyone else is doing things around you and it's their fault, or if you think that there's an entity that is controlling the world, or if you think that your life is out of control and you have no ability to improve it, then you're practicing wrong view and why would you ever do any further training? But with right view, when you accept responsibility for the condition of the mind, the condition of your life, you see that it's your decisions that are leading to either wholesome results or unwholesome results. With this right view, then it becomes, okay, well, how do I improve this? And that's what right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration boils down to is, okay, Mr. Gautama Buddha, what is the wisdom of how to improve the condition of this mind and this life? Please share that with me. I'm not going to believe you. I'm going to go out and reflect on this, and I'm going to practice this and see if it works for myself. And then that's what you're doing with today's class, discussing moral conduct, is you're learning the guidance of the Buddha, and then you don't believe it. You reflect on it and practice it, but you're building on top of that right view because you realize like, okay, there's some things for me to clean up here. Because I guarantee you that when I share what I'm sharing from the Buddha today, that you're not practicing, you know, all of you, you're not practicing these 100% to the guidance of the Buddha, or else your mind would already be enlightened. You wouldn't be experiencing discontentedness. So while these things that I'm going to share with you aren't rules, they're not commandments, they're not sins, they're guidance for you to learn, you can observe that guidance and then gradually 
slowly incorporated into your life, gradually building up your life practice. And over time, more and more, as you build up your practice and you practice closer and closer to the guidance of the Buddha, you will see the condition of the mind and the condition of your life gradually improve. You mentioned that these aren't commandments we're learning. So is it best to just look at them as explanations for how to create a peaceful existence, essentially, and how to create positive karma such that it can improve our practice, essentially? That's a big part of it. Um, You can look at what the Buddha shares as everything he shares is essentially pulling the covers back on the natural law of karma. You know, gravity, we can see like, okay, I drop this thing and it falls. Ah, I see that. That's gravity. But even as a child at three, four, five, six years old, we don't understand it even though we can see it. We have to awaken to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. And then once we understand it, it takes us many years of practice to learn how to balance while we're walking, to learn how to run and hop and skip, to learn how to ride a bike. It takes many years for us to practice the teachings, to get good at it. And we fall down and we bruise our elbows and we bust open our knees and we hit our head and we break our stuff. We make mistakes along the way, but over time we get more and more proficient with this natural law of gravity. So the same thing is that today we're gonna be pulling back the covers on this natural law of gamma And that's what this whole program is doing. The whole path to enlightenment is pulling back the covers so you can see the natural law clearer and clearer. But just because you learn it in class, you're not going to be able to go out and perfect it just because you learned it today. It's going to take you many months and probably years to really perfect it. And that's why you take these classes and you read these books and you work with your teacher and you are constantly working on your practice to refine it more and more just like you did with the natural law of gravity. So to me, the Buddha's teachings are guidance to help you see the natural law of gamma and the natural laws of existence. And then the more you see it, you don't believe it, you reflect on it and practice it. Then you see the truth for yourself. You know with 100% certainty, aha, this is the truth because I see it's working and it's improving. And you can even look back to previous situations that you were in and you can observe how when you made wholesome decisions based on these natural laws that I'm going to share with you or this natural law of karma that I'm going to share with you, you'll be able to see in your past experiences that, yeah, when you practice this, even though you didn't know you were practicing it, but when you did practice it, things went well for you. And when you weren't practicing it, things didn't go well with you. So I'm going to incorporate some of that reflection into today's class. Thank you, David. I'll turn it over to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Hi, James. We have a question from Holly. She says, even though I understand the Eightfold Path logically, I still have thoughts that do not align with my intentions to make positive changes. How can I get control over my mind? And what should I do about these uncontrollable thoughts until I do get more control? Okay, so what did you do when you were learning about the natural law of gravity and you kept falling down off your bicycle? You got back on the bicycle and kept trying to ride it eventually, right? So that's what you need to do here is by you attending class today, you're continuing to learn, you're continuing to understand. So even though you've 
studied this program before, you don't have it soaked into the mind really deeply to the point where it's first nature for you to practice it. So you just got to continually chip away at it, continually practice it. And while you want to get rid of those discontent feelings, you're not there yet. You're understanding the path logically, but you need to understand it in a lot of detail, really refine your practice and keep at it, get back on the bicycle. Don't ask us, when we conduct ourselves with right speech and action, some people might take advantage of the fact that we will not get angry or blame them for anything and might be travel to us. Is this also the natural law of karma? If somebody else is speaking to you harshly because you don't get angry and you don't blame them, then that's their problem, isn't it? If somebody else is speaking aggressively to you and you choose to get angry over that, now you've made it your problem. So right now, the way that you're practicing in terms of you're choosing to get angry and maybe you're blaming other people for that anger, it doesn't actually fix the problem. That's why when you have wrong view, it never fixes the problem. Because if you constantly think you need to train other people, that's not the answer because you can't train everybody in the world to speak to you politely. So the Buddhist teachings in a lot of ways aren't necessarily teaching what's right and wrong, even though we call this right intention, right speech. It's more about righteous speech or wholesome speech. And it's not about training other people to treat us in a certain way, because as soon as you train one person, then there's going to be another person that shows up that doesn't have that training. So if you don't address your mind, that you're choosing to get angry or you're choosing to get upset based on somebody else's speech and actions, then you're going to constantly walk around with this pollution in the mind that's choosing to get angry whenever somebody's disrespectful. So you're never going to get to a point where everyone's respectful to you. You'll never get to that because that would be permanence, right? The universal truth of impermanence, we can see very clearly that you're going to encounter disrespectful people in your life. You're going to encounter impolite, unkind, unfriendly people in your life. But every time you do, if your mind is lacking discipline and you allow the mind to get angry in every one of those situations, then you don't have control over the mind. There's no discipline there. So by you training your mind this way and getting a discipline, if someone's polite, kind, friendly, respectful to you, peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. If somebody's impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, you can still maintain your contentedness and your peacefulness because you realize that that's their practice and it's affecting them, but you don't allow it to affect you. But this comes with practice. It takes a lot of work. This isn't going to happen overnight, but it's going to take a lot of work. So it's not about training other people to do things in a certain way. It's about training your mind to not react in a certain situation, but instead respond if you need to respond. And that measured response, that purposeful response is going to lead to better results for you rather than the mind reacting out of anger or hostility. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. Okay, so let's look at the Buddha's words on right speech, and I'll share with you what he actually taught during his lifetime regarding right speech. 
His Eightfold Path is kind of like a structure that all the other teachings plug into. So what I'm sharing here at the top is just kind of a basic structure of what right speech is. But then at other points in his teachings, he plugs in various details that further elaborate on what right speech is. So if you look at his teachings on the Eightfold Path, it's just basically one page in the book in chapter five. And when he talks about right speech, he says, and what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is right speech. So this is kind of like a placeholder. And this is kind of like a higher level of information regarding right speech. And then when you understand that, you pull back the covers and throughout the rest of his teachings, he plugs in more and more details about what right speech is. And that's what the five factors of well-spoken speech are. This is what really elaborates for you how to actually conduct yourself with moral conduct where you're not harming through your speech. If you put out harm through your speech, then harm's going to come back to you. So for example, just taking this high level teaching, refraining from lying. If you lie, then people are going to lie to you because if you're life partner, your children, your friends, your neighbor, your coworkers get in the habit of hearing you lie because they're going to discover that you're lying and you're not telling the truth. And then when that happens, people are going to end up lying to you because if you lie, then people are going to lie to you. Same thing. If you slander, slander is like talking publicly in a negative way about other people or businesses or things like this. If you slander people openly, publicly, then yeah, people are going to slander you too. You don't have to believe these things, right? You can actually see it in real time. If you ever watch the news and you see a certain political leader stand up and they actually start slandering other politicians, it's only a matter of a couple of days before other politicians are on the TV slandering that politician right? And it's just like this constant arguing because one person slanders and now those people slander that person. And it's just this constant mess of everybody slandering each other. Well, if you do this in your life, in your work environment or in your home environment, and you're slandering people, people are going to slander you as well because it's acceptable to you. So people are going to do this more and more around you. Same thing. If you have harsh speech, like aggressive tone, tempo, or word choices, if you're aggressive and hostile in your speech, this is what your life partner, your children, your coworkers, and others around you are going to hear, and they're going to treat you that same exact way, because what you put out is going to come back to you. Frivolous speech is someone who's just kind of speaking without any purpose. There's no benefit to their speech. They're just kind of yada, 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 right? It's just frivolous speech. It's almost like there's a craving, desire, attachment to speak. And what they're saying isn't really beneficial. It's just frivolous speech. They can't control the mind and speak with purpose. Instead, there's just this frivolous speech. And if you've ever been involved in that, or if you've ever done that yourself, then if you've been involved in something like that where someone has had frivolous speech with you, it's almost like it hurts your mind, right? Like someone's just saying all this stuff that has no 
benefit whatsoever, it really takes a lot of effort to listen to that person because they're just chatting so much. So this is actually putting harm into the world. And if you speak that way in an unclear way with frivolous speech, with harsh speech, with slander, with lies, then more and more people aren't going to be interested in speaking with you. And when you do speak, people aren't going to be interested in listening to you because you don't have any benefit when you speak to them or you're lying or you're slandering or you're speaking harshly. So people aren't going to really heave your advice or heave your words. Here in Thailand, they have a phrase. It's called barami. It means the one who people listen to. The one who people listen to. This is like a characteristic that people develop that when you speak with purpose and you speak in the way that we're going to talk about with the five factors of well-spoken speech, this is a person that people are interested in listening to. The one who people listen to. Barami. This person has barami. This person has that quality, that characteristic that people are interested to listen to this person because they have barami. They're the one who people listen to. So if we have frivolous speech or any of these other aspects, people aren't going to be interested to listen to us. And you're going to find it very difficult to accomplish goals and objectives and tasks in your home life, in your personal life. But if you practice the five factors of well-spoken speech, now you're going to establish barami the one who people listen to. And it's not going to happen in one day, one week, or even one month. But through gradually ramping up your practice, where you're practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, your home life and your professional life, more and more, people will listen and heave your advice. They will look at you as being trustworthy, dependable, one that is looking out for others and helping others, and one to listen to right? Not a deceiver of the world. So let's talk about the five factors of well-spoken speech because this is where right speech really expands. And you can think of this as wholesome speech or righteous speech. This is the guidance of the Buddha that he says, if you speak this way, then because of this natural law of gamma, in the way that the world works, the way the world functions, with this wisdom of how to practice right speech, you will see that your personal and professional relationships will gradually improve. So here's what he says. Monks, possessing five factors, speech is well-spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach or disapproval by the wise. What five? One, it is spoken at the proper time. Two, what is said is true. Three, it is spoken gently. Four, what is said is beneficial. Five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Possessing these five factors, speech is well spoken, not badly spoken. It is blameless and beyond reproach or disapproval by the wise. Whenever the Buddha talks about the wise, he's talking about people with wisdom and people that are enlightened, essentially. So when you speak this way, someone who is wise, like if you go to see a court and you're talking with a judge or a lawyer, or if you go for a job interview, or you're going 
to apply for some open position or you're going to apply for a loan, for example, and you're looking to borrow money from a bank. When you practice right speech, you're going to be more successful in all parts of your life because you're being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, and you're practicing in a way that doesn't cause harm to anyone whatsoever. So let's go through each one of these individually so you can understand what they mean, and I'll expand it for you. So the first factor he talks about here is speaking at the right time, right? If you interrupt people, this is part of the reflection, right? So we learn here that the Buddha says to speak at the right time, but now let's start reflecting on it. If you've ever interrupted people or people have ever interrupted you, did it go over well? Did you like it? Did it help? No, right? People don't like that when you don't speak at the right time. So by you speaking at the right time, you're ensuring that the person's mind is ready to listen to what you have to say. And part of speaking at the right time is not only not interrupting people, but also, you know, if you've got a really big topic to discuss, you have to be aware of the person who you're talking to. So if your life partner just walked in from work, that's the wrong time to sit down and talk about we're having trouble with the bills. We need to talk about the lack of income that we have because, whoa, they just walked in. They haven't had a time to sit down and relax, get some food, drink some water, take off their shoes, put down their jacket. So you've got to find the right time, not only not interrupting people, but think about the topics that you're discussing and find the right time to speak with people when their mind's ready. You might even be interested to ask them, hey, would this be the right time to talk about our finances? And you can kind of check with the person and see if it's the right time. And that way you can ensure that it's the proper time. What is said is true. It's really important that you always, 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 always speak the truth. You need to be a truth speaker, not a deceiver of the world, one to be relied on. Because if you speak any kind of lies whatsoever, even just lacking clarity, then you're going to be inhibited from that. So you should only speak what you know to be the truth 100%. If you don't know something, just say, I don't know. That's the best way rather than to try to allow the ego to kind of slip in there and say like, oh, well, you know, kind of patch something together that isn't exactly the truth. So by you speaking the truth, then every time you speak, people get used to it's the truth, it's the truth, it's the truth, and you'll be more successful in your personal and professional life. Now, reflecting on this, have you ever had people lie to you? Did you like it? Have you ever lied? What was the result of you lying? Did it turn out well? Right? That's how you know this is the truth because you can look back on your past and you can reflect and you can see the truth for yourself that when you lied, it didn't turn out well. Or when other people lied to you, you didn't like it, right? You started not trusting them and you felt like you couldn't really trust this person anymore. Well, that's what will happen if you lie. Number three, it is spoken gently. What gently refers to is it refers to your tone tempo and word choice the opposite of gently would be harsh or hostile or aggressive if you speak harsh hostile or aggressive that's not going to go over well for you so when people have talked that way to you you don't like it right 
It makes you feel like you don't like this person. You can't trust this person. You're not interested in being around this person because they'd speak harsh, aggressive, and hostile. So by you improving your practice and paying attention to your word choice, your tone and your tempo and the way that you speak, now by you speaking gently, more and more people will be interested in talking to you and you'll be able to develop personal and professional relationships that produce more wholesome outcomes. What is said is beneficial. What this refers to is that you should have purposeful speech. You shouldn't have all this cluttered language. You shouldn't have all this frivolous speech, all this idle chatter that's just yada, 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 yada. It should be very purposeful when you speak and have some benefit for the people involved that you're speaking to. So be sure that when you speak, there's always a purpose. There's always benefit when you're speaking to others. And then they'll be more interested to speak with you. Number five, it is spoken with a mind of loving kindness. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. Okay, this is having an interest in seeing others be peaceful and be well. So that's important. That's kind of like almost like an umbrella where you kind of want to infuse your speech with this loving kindness, this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. That's practicing that part of right intention where the Buddha talked about the intention of non-ill will. That's goodwill or loving kindness. So if you have that intention and then your speech is infused with loving kindness along with all these other factors, now you're not going to be causing harm to others. If you can take these five factors, speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, beneficially, in a mind of loving kindness, and you look at situations that went really, really well for you in the past and had a very wholesome outcome, even without you having realized that what you were doing, you were practicing these five factors. In situations where you weren't practicing these five factors, the conversation didn't go well. When you were speaking at the wrong time, if you were lying, if you were speaking harshly, if you were speaking without benefit, or if you were speaking with hatred or anger, or ill will, including if you were speaking with blame, even though it's not listed as one of the five factors, notice how the Buddha mentions blame here. You would like to speak without blame. You're not interested in blaming other people, even if there's a mistake somewhere along the lines. If someone makes a mistake and you're blameful in your speech, people don't like that, right? What you should be focusing on is solutions. That's what an enlightened being is. They're a problem solver. They're always looking for solutions. Whereas if you're going around blaming everybody and trying to see who's at fault, people don't like it. Even if they did make an error, even if they did make a mistake, you don't have to punish them and make them feel horrible for that. But also, if you go around blaming people, you're not going to be correct 100% of the time because that would be permanence. We know that the natural law of impermanence. So if you will go around and are blameful, there's going to be situations where you're blaming people for something that they didn't do. And they're not going to like that either. And you're going to find that your relationships are strained. So rather than with your life partner or your children or coworkers, focusing on blaming and seeing who's at fault, instead, consider the mistake or error in the past 
And now let's just focus on the solution to make it better. Rather than dwelling in the past and who's at fault, let's just focus on a solution and figure out how to implement a solution here. That's the way to have this wholesome moral conduct where you practice right speech and you're not causing harm. So in this situation with these five factors, let's just say Basim and I are sharing an apartment together and we're living together. And he tells me, hey, David, I've got some friends coming over. I uh, just would like to give you a heads up. I'm like, oh, thanks, boss. I appreciate that. If I was like, hey, um, your friends are coming over. Let's clean up right now. Like, let's clean up the whole house. Let's clean up the whole apartment. It's probably not the right time to ask him to do that because his friends are going to be here in five or ten minutes. Why rush around and try to hurry up and clean up? It's not the right time. He's getting ready to relax with some friends. That's going to put some tension in our relationship, and he's not going to like that very much. Or if I said, hey, Bossum, you know, you're always messy. Why are you so messy? Why don't you clean up? Well, that's blaming Bossum. He's not going to like that. And it might not even be true, right? It might be that I'm kind of messy and I'm, why would I blame him? And maybe he just left his glass somewhere. But my expectations are that he should put his glass in the sink. But hey, you know, why do we have to have these set rules that everything has to happen in a certain way. Instead, let's focus on living in harmony and peacefulness. If I'm aggressive and I have all these expectations that I'm laying down to everybody around me and they have to follow my rules, my way or the highway, people aren't going to like being around that. Or if I'm harsh and aggressive with my roommate, he's not going to like that. Or if I'm speaking unbeneficially or I'm speaking with a mind of hatred or anger, that's going to put tension on our relationship and he's not going to really enjoy living with me. And then I'm going to find myself not being able to pay the bills when my roommate moves out, right? What you'll find is with these five factors, even if you practice four of the five factors and you leave off one, there's still a potential that problems are going to happen for you. So let's just say I'm speaking at the right time. What I say is true. It's gently and it's beneficial, but it's not with a mind of loving kindness. Let's just say I have a little bit of sarcasm in there when I'm speaking, but it's the right time. It's true. It's gentle and it's beneficial. Well, I put that little bit of sarcasm in there and guess what's going to happen? Sarcasm is going to come back, right? And then you might get angry about that, that someone's being sarcastic with you, but you're being sarcastic with them. So when you clean up your practice, and you think of the Buddhist teachings as like a ceiling and you're gradually working up closer and closer to that ceiling and you're going to have backward steps. You're going to walk five steps forward, two back. You're going to walk eight steps forward, four back, 10 steps forward, five back. But there's going to be forward progress, right? And you just gradually work up closer and closer to the ceiling in all your relationships. And more and more as you're doing this, you'll clean up your moral conduct as it relates to speech. And it's important that you keep in mind that speech is today is not just oral speech the way it was during the Buddha's lifetime. Today we have text messages, we have chat, we have email, we have Facebook posts, we have other social media posts, we have different things that we write down like a resume or letters that we send. So really the way that you can think of this is right communication that all the time where you're communicating through language, 
you should ensure that you're not causing harm to others. And if you practice the five factors of well-spoken speech, gradually improving it more and more, you'll see that your professional and personal relationships will improve. Let me see what questions you guys have on this. Remember, the way that you ask those questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and we'll make sure that your question gets asked during the class, or you can raise your hand electronically. Hi, Damon. I expect that most of us at some point in our lives have been dishonest in the interest of sparing another person's feelings, for instance. And I was wondering if you could explain how that fits in the right speech. Yeah, so let's just say your wife comes in, James, and says, Hey, honey, what do you think about this dress? You think I should go out wearing this dress today? Well, if you have a preference that the dress doesn't look good, it probably isn't going to make sense for you to say, oh, my goodness, that's the most horrible dress I've ever seen. Right. Even though it's the proper time, even though in your mind it might be true, even though it's maybe spoken gently, even though it's beneficial, and maybe even though it's with a mind of loving kindness, right? But this can kind of hinder or burden your relationship and create this roughness between you and your life partner. A better way to approach something like this, in my view, is rather than say that you think the dress is horrible because obviously they bought it, so they must like it. And what they're really looking for is they're kind of looking for a confidence boost, right? So in order to continue to speak the truth, you could say, well, honey, as long as you like it, that's all that matters, right? And that's still the truth. That's still gently. That's still with a mind of loving kindness. What's really going on there, if you don't like the dress, it's your perception. It's your perception of the dress because in her mind, she likes the dress. She thinks it's wonderful. So speaking with the five factors of well-spoken speech and speaking the truth, you still have to make sure that you're not creating this harshness or this separation or this division or this argumentative speech that's going to create some kind of argument. So these are the five factors, but there's also other teachings that the Buddha shares on right speech once you get into the next program after this, which is the Pali Canon in English study group, where you'll see in other volumes of the books where the Buddha elaborates on right speech even further. And he talks about a speech that separates two people, that you shouldn't use speech that is in the nature of separating two people. So if we reply to our life partner, commenting negatively about clothes that they are wearing, that's going to be a speech that is argumentative and, and separates two people. So this is the place where I start people out with these teachings, but then there's more teachings beyond this. So you got to gradually build up your practice more and more where you're observant of your speech. And by slowing the mind down in meditation, like we taught on Wednesday, you'll be able to speak this way more easily. Whereas if your mind is overactive and it's running really fast, you're going to have a hard time speaking this way because you're not going to be able to observe your speech and kind of think through your speech. So by keeping the mind calm and slowing it down, you'll be able to implement these five factors and then attend to some of these other nuances of right speech as you learn them. You mentioned perception and we have a related question on YouTube from Adrian. There are times where truth can be a matter of perception. How do you deal with this? Perception being a matter of one's own experience 
and based on individual feelings, based on those experiences. The way that we talk about the truth in the Buddhist teachings is it's the truth. It's not about perception. So if you have a certain truth, it's not your truth, my truth, James's truth. There's only the truth. It's the natural laws of existence are the truth. There's no such thing as multiple truths, for example, like James's truth, my truth, your truth. Because when you look at red, red is red. And for James, it's red. For me, it's red. For you, it's red. For someone who is colorblind, for example, they know they're colorblind and they're going to know that they can't tell the the color, but they're not going to say it's red knowing that they're colorblind, they're seeing some other color. So you have to always be searching for the truth and looking for the truth, realizing that your perceptions are trying to stand in the way of you seeing the truth. So what a perception is, is it's an opinion or a belief about something. So you have to be very observant is this my perception or is this the truth? So using the example that I just gave with James, like if your wife comes out and says, hey, look at this dress I just bought, what do you think? Well, if we think that it's ugly, that's a perception. That's not the truth because an enlightened being isn't going to see something as ugly. They're just gonna see a dress and they're gonna see colors. They're not going to see something as being ugly necessarily because that's a quality of mind that is arising based on your perceptions, based on how you're perceiving the world around you. So an enlightened being isn't going to allow their perceptions to stand in the way of seeing the truth and speaking the truth. So you have to make sure that whatever you're speaking is the truth at all times. And what this does is it helps the mind be at ease. Because if you're lying, you're telling an intentional lie, for example, then the mind's going to be overactive and have to worry. And it's going to have to sort out, oh, I'm talking to Manala today, so I need to say it this way. I'm talking to Basam tomorrow, so I'm saying it this way. And then the mind's constantly having to figure out who am I talking to and what am I supposed to be saying? And the mind gets all twisted up and wrapped up in these lies. Whereas if you're always speaking the truth, the mind can be at ease because you're speaking on what the mind currently understands and what the mind knows. And where you have perceptions, you have to be able to sort that out and be able to see through your perceptions and find the true reality. That's what this whole path is about, is being able to see the true reality and not holding on to perceptions. We have a question from Rich. Does small talk go against right speech? Not exactly, because small talk can be helpful. Like if you meet somebody for the first time, you know, you need to ask, like, where are you from? You know, how old are you? You might ask, you know, like, what is your career? You know, do you have kids? Do you have a a partner, you know, you might ask these kind of questions in order to get acquainted with the person. And this is beneficial and it's a mind of loving kindness, right? So having that kind of small talk where you're kind of building a relationship is what is leading to bigger and better things in your relationship. And without that uh, ability to get to know each other and get acquainted with each other, you're not going to be able to move on to other things. So as you're doing that initial discussions over getting to know someone for the first time, just be sure that you're always speaking with these five factors so that you're not causing harm. 
Whereas if it's like, oh, you're a lawyer, right? Like this is like the way that we talk sometimes if there's sarcasm in there or there's a certain perception of lawyers and somebody thinks that of lawyers is bad, then when you speak that way in the tone, the tempo, the word choice is in such a way that it can actually cause problems for you. So even during that small talk, for example, you have to always be aware of the five factors of well-spoken speech and speak with them at all times. This is going to help you establish and maintain personal and professional relationships in a really wholesome way. I was wondering, David, oftentimes we have this idea that we speak differently to different people. For instance, if we're talking to our children or we're talking to our parents or if we're talking to our boss, there's a different standard of speech. Is the beta telling us that the same standard applies to everyone that we're speaking to? This is a very, very good point, James. I'm glad you're asking this question. When we talk about chapter 14, the Brahma Viharas, or the four healthy mental states, in there you'll learn about what's called equanimity. Equanimity has two components to it. One is about maintaining the calmness and composure of the mind, but another one is treating all people equally and fairly. So if you practice the five factors of well-spoken speech with equanimity, where your mind is treating all beings equally, then you just have one way of practice. If you speak to the president of your country one way, your life partner another way, your children another way, the boss of your company another way, maybe if you have household workers in your house, you talk to them another way, you talk to the street sweepers and the garbage collectors another way, this is very taxing on the mind to have to figure out at any point in time, who are you talking to and how do you need to talk to them? Do I respect them? Do I not respect them? Do I speak this way? Do I speak that way? It's very taxing to the mind. It can be very tiresome. What the Buddha is talking about is the natural laws of existence, this natural law of karma that applies to everyone and all relationships. And you can develop your practice where you speak to everyone exactly the same. And if you're speaking with politeness, kindness, friendliness, and respectful, with these five factors of well-spoken speech, whether you're talking to the president of your country, your boss, your life partner, your children, your neighbors, the street sweeper, the garbage collectors, your household staff, or some other person in the world, your mind can be at ease because you talk to everybody exactly the same. Your life practice is your life practice. And you don't have to be switching around in your mind, constantly trying to figure out who you're speaking to. You just always speak the same with everyone. It makes it really easy. Thank you, David. Let's go to Manal now for a question. Uh, hi, teacher David. Uh, I was wondering how effective is maintaining noble silence in regards to uh, following um, right speech and specifically if it's beneficial to recognizing how to speak gently. So what people tend to refer to as noble silence and tell me if this isn't your definition Manal, because of impermanence everybody defines it differently people tend to describe noble silence as like going an extended period of time without speaking like maybe like a week or two weeks where you don't speak to anybody 
to me, this isn't an, an appropriate way to progress on the path to enlightenment. If you went a month or two months, there's people that go away in caves and they don't speak to anybody for months or years, and they think this is going to lead to enlightenment. But in reality, what it leads to is someone having the inability and incapability of actually practicing right speech. In order to learn this path and practice this path and attain enlightenment, they would have to learn right speech. Being silent, while it can be applied to specific situations, if you did noble silence where you didn't speak for an extended period of time, you're just inhibiting your ability of training the mind to learn how to speak using right speech. Sure, you're not causing harm through your speech, but you're also not learning how to speak with right speech. So an enlightened being is going to have to speak and they're going to need to learn how to speak in this way in order to not cause harm to others. But where silence can actually be helpful is not something that the Buddha taught, but something that grandma taught. Grandma taught that if you don't have anything good to say, then don't say anything at all. And you guys have probably heard that in your life as well. So that can apply here with right speech is that if you're being asked a question or if you're noticing that there's certain unwholesome thoughts arising in the mind, if you can put a pause on that and you can catch it and not say it, it's better to say nothing at all. If you don't have something good to say, just don't say anything at all. So this silence can be applied to specific situations where you're angry, where you're frustrated, where you don't have something good to say. It's better to put a pause on your speaking. But in terms of like long-term silence, I don't suggest this because it doesn't actually train the mind to use right speech. It just trains the mind to be quiet, which isn't going to produce right speech. Right. Uh, this is more um, uh, an exercise for, let's say, for a situation or for uh, at most, you know, a couple of hours or for, you know, an, uh, if... Uh, you were to be entering in a situation and, and there, it's, there's an understanding that, um, you know, you have to take the middle path uh, and rather than um, outwardly use speech incorrectly in an unwholesome way, I, it would it be beneficial to kind of go in knowing that, hey, I, there's always this option to maintain silence and to reflect and to investigate at what point um, you know, speech can be used, if at all. Okay, so see there, that's a good thing that our understanding of noble silence is different. When I think of noble silence, I think of long-term silence. There's people that have tried to go six months or a year without speaking, right? And they think this is going to help them to attain enlightenment, but it actually doesn't. So that's what I think of when I think of noble silence. What you're describing, the way that I describe it, is just choosing to be silent and not speaking in a situation where you know it would be harmful. So we can think of that as speaking at the right time. So if your mind is angry or frustrated, that's not the right time to speak. So not only does the right time relate to not interrupting people, not only does it relate to ensuring that other people, it's the right time to speak, but also your own mind. So if your own mind has anger or frustration or annoyance, that's the wrong time to speak because that's what's going to come out of the mouth. So situational silence is helpful and you're going to need to practice that. And that's where 
learning the mental discipline that we're going to talk about next week, that you can restrain the mind. That's where it's really important that you learn how to observe that I shouldn't speak in this situation because if I do, it's only going to cause harm and I'm not interested in causing harm. Back to right intention. I'm not interested in causing harm. I'm practicing harmlessness here. And if I speak, I know I'm going to be causing harm because you're so angry, you're so frustrated that if you speak, you're going to be causing harm. So putting a pause on that and choosing to be silent is a very wise choice. And sometimes the best choice is to do nothing at all. And that's what you're talking about, Manal. And where you see that as being helpful and appropriate, feel free to employ it. Thank you. Let's go to Basim now for our Zoom questions. Well, we have a question from Donnie. He asks, is a white lie considered wrong speech? Yes, it's still a lie. We call things white lies and we say that this lie isn't going to harm, but all lies harm. There's no such thing as a unharmful lie. You know, the definition of white lie is typically an unharmful lie, but there's no such thing as an unharmful lie. That's part of that delusion, part of that ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. Any and all lies are going to cause harm. So you have to train the mind rather than tell a lie a deliberate lie is kind of make sure you cast it in a positive message so like the example i gave james like if you truly think that your wife's clothing or your life partner's clothing is not something that you would go outside wearing it doesn't make sense for you to tell them a lie and say oh it looks beautiful because at that point you're conflicted inside where you're truly lying because you truly feel that it doesn't look good, but you're telling them a lie just to please the mind. And the mind's going to be conflicted with this and you're still telling lies. It's better to recast that and say, oh, as long as you like it, that's all that matters. I'm just interested in spending time with you. Let's go out and have a good time, right? Don't even address the whether you like it or you don't like it, because what's really important is that your partner likes it and they feel confident when they walk outside in the clothing that they've chosen. Marianne says, if I ask, what do you think? Aren't I asking for their position? Yes. If somebody, if you said, what do you think? You're asking somebody's opinion, their perception. That's what a perception is, is a belief or opinion, the way things seem to be. No more questions for that, mm-hmm. But with that, what I was explaining earlier is that if you truly say, I don't like the dress, that's going to oftentimes put a problem into your relationship, right? How many times have we heard about situations where somebody asks you, what do you think? And then if somebody says, you know, it's ugly, then that's going to hurt the mind of the other individual. They're still causing their own painful feelings there. But being a wise practitioner and what your real goal is, is to go out and and enjoy your night with this person or enjoy your day with this person. It wouldn't make sense to tell somebody that you don't like their clothing in that situation to me because, you know, it's just going to cause separation between you and whoever is asking the question. Now, if you say like, you know, let's just go out and have a good time as long as you like it. That's all that matters. And someone's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to accept that answer. Truly, what do you think? Well, you know, if you share the truth at that point, then maybe their mind's truly ready for it. And you share 
what your true feelings are about the clothes that they wear. That's where the Buddhist teachings aren't a decision tree of telling you exactly what to do in every situation. Notice that his teachings are guidance and you have to practice within that guidance. And for me, if somebody asked me the way that I practice these teachings is if somebody asked me about their clothing, I wouldn't tell them that it looks ugly because at this point, I think all clothing is beautiful. I think all people are beautiful. I don't see anything as ugly or beautiful. I think that all people are beautiful. I think all clothing is beautiful. So I can easily say to somebody, oh, it looks wonderful. You got a smile on your face. That's what's important. But in the past, there were times when, yeah, I did have a think that the person who was asking me that question, that I did ha- have a certain perception of things were ugly. And in those situations, even then, when I had that perception, I didn't share it because I knew it was headed for trouble. But at this point in my life, I don't have those same perceptions. So now I, I don't have to say something's ugly because I don't see anything as ugly. So you're going to need to learn all these teachings that I'm sharing throughout this program and then find the sweet spot, find the middle where you feel comfortable and how you speak. So here the Buddhist teachings aren't telling you how to speak. They're just giving you some guidance and some structure in which for you to choose how to speak for yourself. That's where our own individual personality comes into this. Everybody's personality is going to be different and we're going to choose to speak in unique ways in different ways. But if we're using these same basic principles based on the natural law of gamma, then you can ensure that you're not causing harm. So let's go ahead to the next part, which I shared some teachings with you from the book of Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. But based on what we've already discussed, we've already actually talked about all of these things. So I'm just going to go forward into right action because all of these things are actually in the book that you'll read once you start reading the book. So right action relates to our bodily actions, not causing harm through our bodily actions. Because if we punch somebody and we caused harm with our bodily actions, that harm's going to come back to us. That person's going to punch us back. Maybe that person's friends start attacking us. Maybe we go to jail. Uh, There's lots of different things that can happen to us. So when we cause harm through our bodily actions, then that harm is going to come back to us. And this is the cause and effect or the action and result, the results of our decisions. So here, just as loose guidance and kind of as a placeholder, the Buddha gives just a basic kind of introduction to right action. But then in other parts of his teachings, he shares other aspects of right action, things that we can actually cause harm through our bodily actions. So here he says, in what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So he only gives three right actions, but that's not everything, right? This is the Buddha kind of layering his teachings and slowly pulling back the covers so that as you see other teachings of his, it elaborates upon this. So notice he doesn't say, don't walk up to somebody and punch them in the face. 
But we know if we understand right action is ensuring that we're not causing harm through our bodily actions, that that would be unwise for us to do something like that. So there's other parts in his teachings where he expands upon this. These are just three particular actions that he puts as a first level of detail and then helps you to see more detail later. This connects into also the five precepts where the five precepts expands upon this even more. Essentially what he's talking about here is killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. And he expands upon all of these in the five precepts and in other parts of his teachings. And I've got some of that here kind of summarized for you in the way that I put it into the book, Developing a Life Practice. So I kind of summarize some of this for you to help you see that it's our bodily actions that the Buddha is talking about purifying here. We're essentially purifying our intentions, our speech, and our actions to ensure that we're not causing harm. Because if we killed other beings, then there's got to be a certain amount of hate or anger in the mind in order to kill other beings. If we're practicing harmlessness from right intention, then we wouldn't kill other beings. So it's important that if you have bugs in your house or you have other beings that are around your house, that you just kind of relocate them outside, right? And of course, you're not killing human beings, not killing animals and things like this, because that would involve having a certain amount of hatred or ill will or those kind of things in the mind. And if you have that in the mind, then it's going to come out through your intention, speech, and actions, and therefore it's going to be returned to you. Same thing with stealing. If you've ever stolen things before, then people have probably stolen from you too, right? Because as you choose to steal from people, people are going to steal from you. And you don't like that, right? Because that harms you. If you've worked and you've acquired a certain amount of income and you've purchased certain things in your life in order to sustain your life and take care of your needs in life, if somebody were to steal those things from you, it would put a hardship on you. It would make it challenging for you to continue to go to work if somebody stole your car, for example. So when we steal things, this ends up causing harm to others Therefore, harm is going to come to us. And you can see this very clearly in your life if you've ever stolen or you know of these kind of things that have happened with others. Sexual misconduct is one that the Buddha expands upon. Sexual misconduct essentially boils down to not causing harm through our sexual conduct. That when we have sex, that we're doing it with consent, that we're doing it in a faithful, loyal, committed relationship and that we ensure that we're having one loyal partner at a time. He never discusses that same gender relationships are harmful. This is really important to understand because the Buddha talked over 2,500 years ago, and when he describes sexual misconduct, he explains it in a lot of detail, and he never once shares anything about same-sex relationships. He was aware of same-sex relationships because there's other parts of his teachings where he talks about people who are born into male bodies, but they don't identify with masculine qualities. And he talks about women who are born into female bodies who don't identify with feminine qualities. And if you understand the universal truth of impermanence, then you would know that not every single man is going to be interested in having sex with a female. And not every single female is going to be interested in having sex with a male. 
And not every single human being is going to even enjoy sex, right? Or, or want to have sex because of impermanence. So it's impossible for everybody in the entire world to have sex with someone of the opposite gender. So the Buddha was well aware of same gender relationships, and this doesn't cause harm. There's no harm that's being done when two loving, consenting adults come together and choose to have sex with each other, whether it's two men, two female, or a man and a female. They're not causing harm to anybody. It's a loving, consenting relationship. So be sure that you understand that because if you are in a relationship with someone of the same gender, there's no harm whatsoever. It's completely normal. Or if you know others that are in same gender relationships, there's no harm whatsoever. And this is one of the things that I point to to show you how truly enlightened and how much wisdom the Buddha actually had. Because 2,500 years ago, he understood what I'm sharing with you right now. There's people that live today that don't understand this. And their mind isn't awakened to that wisdom that there is no harm in someone choosing to have a loving, consenting, loyal, faithful relationship and have sexual contact. That that doesn't harm other people when those two beings are choosing to be in a relationship together. But this Buddha, this teacher, 2,500 years ago, he understood that. And that's why when he taught sexual misconduct, he never mentioned that same gender relationships are harmful. Additional things here are things like substances that cause heedlessness. The Buddha didn't put this in that placeholder on the Eightfold Path, but it's part of his teachings in other places. If we ingest substances that cause heedlessness, essentially heedlessness is like unalertness, unawareness of the mind, unattentiveness of the mind, uncalmness of the mind. There's lots of different substances in the world that does that. If we do that, then we're actually harming ourselves. Because if we are on this path to enlightenment, to purify the mind through learning and practicing teachings and training the mind, if we pollute the mind with poisons like substances that cause heedlessness, then this is going to create an uncalm, unattentive, unalert mind. And now you're more likely to kill, to steal, to commit sexual misconduct, to lie, to speak with frivolous speech and all these other things. It would be utterly impossible to practice these teachings in a way that if your mind is heedless, that you're not causing harm because that's the time where you're actually causing harm to your own body. And through your moral conduct, you can be easily causing harm to others as well. So it's important that if you're going to purify your actions, that you look at eliminating any substances that cause heedlessness. This will produce more clarity in the mind. And then another one that I put here that shows up in another part of the Buddhist teachings is gambling. If we gamble, this is going to take away money from our life. If we work and we apply effort to acquire certain resources through our career, and we go off and gamble this away, it's going to cause harm to us. And this is a bodily action. It's based on craving, desire, attachment. So remember, these aren't commandments. These aren't rules. These aren't sins. These are things that if we do them, they're going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, harm is going to come to us. So like gambling, if we take away this money from our family and we go try to play this game just to create some pleasant feelings in the mind, 
then we're most likely going to lose that money and it's going to cause harm to our family. So this is how our bodily actions can actually cause harm. So the five precepts is in chapter seven of the book. So when we get to that point in this program, we will be expanding upon the five precepts and talking about them in a lot of detail. But understand that part of this path to enlightenment is purifying your bodily actions and ensuring you're not causing any harm through your bodily actions. Picking up on the question that Holly asked, not only is it important to purify your right intentions, purify your speech, and purify your actions, that you're not causing harm, but it's also important that all these things are in sync with each other. You might have a mind of loving kindness. You might be practicing renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness as an intention, but your speech and your actions might not sync up to that. Or your mind might have some hatred in it, and you might be trying to kind of mask that through speech and actions, which you can't do. So oftentimes the way that we cause harm is not necessarily just practicing wrong intention or wrong speech or wrong action, but also when these things aren't in sync. So that's why here at this early part of the Eightfold Path, that all of these steps are kind of building on each other. And you're learning all of these steps and you're practicing all of these steps to gradually work up to that ceiling where you're practicing more and more better and more wholesome uh, moral conduct where you're not harming through your speech and your actions. Do you guys have any questions on right action? I was wondering, David, if we find ourselves having conflicts with others, is this the time to look back at our action and at our speech? Is this an example of investigation to see what part of our speech or action may have been a bit off? Yeah, a really wise thing for you to do when you're learning these teachings is now that you're learning them and you're understanding them is to sit back and really reflect on your life and really look at some problematic situations that you've encountered and you can see where you weren't practicing these teachings and that's why they occurred. And likewise, Look at things that went wholesome in your life and look back and reflect and see how because you were practicing these teachings without even realizing it, that those things turned out well. Not as a way to feel guilty or shameful, but just as a way for you to reflect and see the truth for yourself. And now being able to see more and more clearly what the truth is and that these are wise teachings and you start implementing them into practice more and more you're still going to have missteps. Even though I taught the five factors of well-spoken speech today, you're not going to be able to snap your fingers and implement that and be perfect in every single relationship. So in situations where you're aspiring to practice right speech and you're not able to do that wholly and 100% because you're not going to be able to, then it's really wise after the conversation where you see it didn't go well is to sit back and reflect and sit and think, all right, I just spoke with my wife. It didn't really go well. All right, I would like to improve that for the future. Let me go through these five factors in my mind. Did I speak at the right time? Did I speak the truth? Did I speak gently? Was it beneficial? Was it a mind of loving kindness? And was it blameless? And if you, today going forward, if every time you encounter a situation where your relationships aren't going well, and instead of blaming the other person, you look inward and see what part of your practice 
wasn't up to par and then you aim to improve that, that's where you're really making a difference. That's where you're going to be improving your life and your life practice. Because if you sit around and just blame and complain about other people not practicing, that doesn't help you. If you're in an argument with somebody and let's just say they're 90% wrong and you're 10% wrong, figure out your 10% and fix your 10%. Your goal in this life is not to fix other people. Even though some people go around and try to do that, that's what the unenlightened mind wants to do. Because the unenlightened mind has wrong view, it wants to go around and fix everyone else. Well, if that's what you're doing, when do you fix your own mind? So stop trying to fix everyone else, unless you've got children, right? You need to guide them. But stop trying to fix everyone else and work on your own mind. Build your own wisdom. Improve your practice. Because when you improve your practice and you fix your 10%, then you'll notice that people around you will start to improve their conduct. So it's kind of like life in the unenlightened state. It's kind of like a log jam. Everything's jammed up and nothing wants to move. Everyone's blaming each other for the problems. Where what you're doing here is you're resetting the mind and you're saying, no, 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 no. I need to focus on my own practice. Let me pull out this log where I go around blaming everybody and let me start looking inward and fixing my own problems. And now the logs shift. Let me pull out this log where I speak harsh to everybody and start speaking gentle. Now the logs shift. You shift, your mind shifts, your children shift, your life partner, your coworker shift because you're no longer speaking harshly. You've pulled that log out. And now with each one of these teachings and the more that we have to talk about in this whole program, you start shifting this life and get life flowing again so the logs can flow so you don't have this big log jam. So always be looking at your own practice, even though you might be in conversations where other people are doing things wrong. Okay, that's their life. That's their life practice. You're not here to fix them. You're here to fix your own mind, your own practice. Even if you're 1% wrong in a conversation, fix your 1%. That's how you get to 100% enlightened. If you just focus on everyone else, you're not getting enlightened. You're not improving your life. So enlightened beings, their life is going to be very peaceful, very, very peaceful. The people around them aren't going to be disgruntled and angry and hostile and aggressive. Their life is just very fluid and very easy. But when they encounter someone who is harsh and aggressive, their mind isn't upset by it. Their mind isn't shaken up by it because their mind no longer is basing their inner feelings on other people's speech or other people's actions. So focus on your own work. That's where the real progress is. We have a question from Adrian. On many Buddhist sites, the hot topic is refrain from killing is associated to veganism. Can you elaborate on this, please? So when we kill other beings, it causes harm. And it doesn't have to be that we do the actual killing. In the case of our food choices and our food supply, if we choose to eat meat, someone else is killing on our behalf. And we're still affected by that. The way that we're affected by it is when we eat the meat, there are certain toxins, hormones, and drugs that go into the body, and our mind and our body is affected by that. There's research that shows they've taken fish 
out of wild streams in places like America where the water is known to be very pure. And they found over 100, 200 different substances that were in the flesh of the wild fish. Things like cocaine, antidepressants, things like this. When someone else kills an animal on our behalf and we choose to ingest that meat, that cocaine, that hormones, those toxins, those antidepressants are going into our body and it's affecting our mind whether we realize it or not. So it's just like if somebody else stole a car and gave it to you, they stole it. But guess what? You're going to jail, right? Same thing as if someone else kills the fish and you eat it, it's still affecting your body and your mind. And there's also research that shows a lot of inflammation in the body through eating meat. And there's various illnesses and sicknesses that are directly attributed to it. So meat is a hard one for people sometimes to decide to let go of. And you don't have to let go of it today. You may even decide to never let go of it. It's your choice of when or if you ever decide to let it go. But the thing about the Buddhist teachings is that you can see the truth for yourself. If you choose to gradually move meat out of your food supply and go to a plant-based food supply, you will see for yourself that the condition of the mind and the condition of the body improves. You don't have to believe me or anyone else on this topic. You don't have to believe anyone in Facebook or anything like that. Look for the truth yourself. Move to a plant-based diet and you'll see within three to six months the condition of the mind and the condition of the body will drastically improve because you're not ingesting these drugs, toxins, and hormones anymore. And your mind can be at ease that you're not contributing to the killing of living beings. Thank you, David. Let's get a Boston once again. Well, uh, Marian said, uh, regarding substances, what about prescribed medications that alter the mind, i.e. anxiety meds, pain meds, meds like from withdrawal from or There's details that I teach about this when we talk about the five precepts. In the book and in the class, I go through step-by-step step talking about marijuana and prescriptions and all of these things. All of these things need to be addressed. Today probably isn't the best time to go into details on all of those things because there's things that you need to learn that I can't really just teach it to you right now. I mean, I could, but it's going to take a lot of time. So what I'd rather do since you're planning to be in this program long term is let's wait until we get to chapter seven and we'll discuss those things there. A question from Rick. He asks, what about the Buddha have to say about a householder who has a glass of wine with dinner? In, order, in other words, in moderation. Yeah, there's no such thing as an enlightened being who drinks alcohol. But again, when we talk about these kind of things, people's minds are really holding on to it because of that central desire, that taste, right? With meat, with wine and these kind of things. The Buddha never talked about drinking in moderation. He talked about refraining, you know, eliminating it, that practicing relinquishment. So what you've probably noticed, you know, I know like for me early in my life, I used to drink whiskey, alcohol, you know, wine, all these things. But over time, you have certain experiences with that and you see that it affects the mind and the quality of the mind and you gradually start moving away from it more and more. And as you do, you realize that the mind is actually better off, that 
you know, in social situations, if someone's drinking a little bit of wine just to feel a little bit loose, that's because the mind's uncomfortable and the wine is covering up that uncomfortableness. Well, let's get to the craving desire attachment that's in there causing that dissatisfaction and let's eliminate the dissatisfaction. Let's not just cover it up with wine. Let's eliminate the dissatisfaction so you can get to purification of the mind and you don't need to rely on some substance for anything. Because if you think about what some kind of liquid is meant for, is it's meant for hydration of the body. That's what putting liquid into this body is for. So we should be looking at putting healthy things into the body, not substances that cause heedlessness because we don't need those things. An enlightened mind doesn't need those things. So we can look at you know, fruit smoothies, we can look at water, we can look at really good quality ingestion of products that are creating health in the body and hydration and training the mind to let go of these things that we might have been doing in the past, but now more and more when we see that we can train the mind to get away from them, then we'll start experiencing improved results in our life. Seems to be all the questions we have for now, David. Okay, let's talk about right livelihood. Right livelihood has to deal with how we sustain our life. This is the fifth step on the Eightfold Path. If our livelihood is such that it's causing harm to others in the world, then harm is going to come to us. And the Buddha put a little placeholder like this in his Eightfold Path, but then in other parts of his teachings, he expands upon what right livelihood is. So here in the Eightfold Path, all he says is, In what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. A noble disciple is someone who's practicing the teachings very closely. The Buddha recast this word noble in his time frame and showed people who were considered to be of lower class and unnoble. He showed them by how practicing wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, they can actually be noble. It doesn't matter what family you're born into. It matters about your wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline that determines if you're noble or not. So whenever you see the Buddha talk about a noble disciple, he's talking about a person who's practicing his teachings closely. So here, monks, the person who practices these teachings closely, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. That's how you can read that. And then later in his teachings, he expands upon what right livelihood is. And he talks about it in terms of household practitioners, and he talks about it in terms of ordained practitioners. Because for ordained practitioners, they're practicing a much more refined version of the teachings that is more conducive to enlightenment. So they're wrong livelihood, for example, or their right livelihood is much more exhaustive and extensive than household practitioners. And that's just because of the lifestyle choice. For household practitioners, there's just five livelihoods that the Buddha talked about that if we practice these, then we're going to cause harm in the world. And here's where he says it. Monks, a household practitioner should not engage in these five trades. What five? Business in weapons, business in living beings, business in meat, business in substances that cause heedlessness, in business in poisons, 
a household practitioner should not engage in these five trades? Well, the reason why is that if we sustain our life on these five wrong livelihoods, we're going to be causing harm in the world and thus harm is going to come to us. You can go through each one of these livelihoods, whether it's selling weapons, selling living beings like human trafficking or slaves or animals or things like this. It's trapping those beings in a life of servitude. And this is going to cause problems. If we sell meat, that means that we have to kill other beings in order to sell meat or somebody else has to kill living beings in order for us to sell meat. So that's going to produce harm in the world or substances that cause heedlessness. Well, if you sold drugs on your street corner, you're either going to get robbed, you're going to get beat up, you're going to maybe get raped or murdered, you might get arrested. These are all harms that are coming to you. Even people who work in liquor stores, for example, even though liquor is legally allowed by society, right? The Buddha's teachings and the natural laws of existence are at a much higher level than the laws of society. One of the places they get robbed the most in society are liquor stores. Why? Because they're selling substances that cause heedlessness. And oftentimes in those robberies, people get murdered or get beat up, right? That's because they have a business in the substances that cause heedlessness, right? And that's why that happens. And you would be wise not to do that. So we're not talking about what's legal in terms of society because societal laws are made by human beings. We're talking about the natural law of gamma, right? And the Buddha talks also in these wrong livelihoods about business and poisons because poisons are meant to kill other beings the same thing like business and weapons these are businesses that the end result of what you're selling or what you're participating in is to kill other beings so that's why if you participated in these kind of livelihoods and you base the sustaining of your life on these livelihoods it's going to cause harm in the world and therefore harm is going to come to you and it doesn't matter what's legal in society's laws like legally you can sell alcohol legally you can be a cashier at a liquor store but if you did that because of the natural law of karma harm can come to you so the buddha is here teaching you and sharing wisdom with you that a wise individual would not practice these five wrong livelihoods because if you do harm will come to you and it's not about him threatening or making you feel guilty or shameful or fearful or anything like that because the buddha never uses guilt shame and fear in order to share his teachings instead he's providing you the wisdom and guidance to help you see the decisions that you can make in the world and how your wholesome decisions are going to lead to wholesome results and how unwholesome decisions are going to lead to unwholesome results. So as you learn these teachings more and more, you can practice in a way that is wholesome decisions leading to wholesome results. Like this next part, which expands a little bit further on wrong livelihood where the Buddha talks about the way in which we practice our livelihood. He says, in what monks is wrong livelihood? Scheming, talking, hinting, belittling, pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. What he's talking about here is he's talking about kind of just taking a job or having a livelihood just to make money 
pursuing gain with gain, just looking to gain something. Your mind isn't really into it. Your heart's not really into it. You're kind of scheming. There's corruption. You're maybe slandering, belittling to try to make your gain in your business. You're slandering this business in order to get your business to be more popular. This is part of the way in which we go about practicing our livelihood. This part is mostly covered in right intention, right speech, and right action. But it's important that you understand part of right livelihood that's going to bring peacefulness to your mind and it's going to put your mind at ease is when you're engaged in a livelihood that you feel really good about and that you feel that you're really putting your purpose and effort into something wholesome, you're going to feel good about that. Whereas if you're just kind of working at a job just to collect a paycheck and your heart's not really in it, you're not going to be really fulfilled in your life. You're not going to feel really fulfilled. So what the Buddha is talking about here is choosing a livelihood that you're not just pursuing gain on gain, but instead you're really providing a wholesome purpose to the world to help society and you feel really good about the work that you're doing. So if you wash cars and you really enjoy that and you feel like, wow, your thing in life is just to clean people's cars and detail cars and that makes you feel really good to send a nice, beautiful, bright car out the door and that's what you enjoy doing, wonderful. Or if you enjoy cleaning houses and that's something that you truly enjoy, wonderful. You're helping somebody through your efforts of cleaning houses or cleaning cars or being a doctor or a lawyer or a food server or any of these kind of occupations or maybe even being a volunteer at a volunteer organization. Maybe you've retired and now you volunteer your time to help other people through a volunteer organization. These are all right livelihoods that aren't causing harm. Instead, they're providing benefit or value or purpose in the world. And you're going to feel better about that than just pursuing gain with gain. Any questions on right livelihood? I was wondering, David, if we currently find ourselves supporting ourselves or our family through what may be wrong livelihood, what would the Buddha recommend in this situation? Would he recommend that we leave this job immediately or is there a better approach? Yeah, I wouldn't suggest any drastic changes in anybody's life. So let's say, for example, that somebody is a a sex worker. They're doing that. That's business and living beings, right? And, And that's causing harm to others. And it's also causing harm to yourself through maybe potential disease, illness, or you could have criminal liability. There can be guilt or shame associated with that. Rather than trying to run out and drastically change everything all at once, you've got to do things in a consistent way that's gradually moving to better things. So if I was involved in sex work, for example, I would try to save some money, try to retool, try to get some experience, try to build some skills in order to then move out of that profession into something more wholesome that's going to allow me to build a career. So rather than try to feel like you have to run out and instantly implement all these things right away, that's not what leads to enlightenment. It's not going to be that you're unenlightened today and tomorrow you're going to instantly be enlightened by doing all of these things. That's not how it works. It's not like you're following rules and once you follow those rules, you're enlightened. That's not how it works. It's gradually training the mind and shifting and kind of 
reprogramming the mind to understand that your decisions in life are either causing harm or not, and you're going to experience the results of that. So you should gradually transition your life towards improving things like your livelihood. So if you're involved in any of those wrong livelihoods, just look to gradually move out. Now, if you were doing something that's really risky, like selling drugs on a street corner, for example, I would say drop that and get out of it immediately because you can really mess up your life. You can get murdered. You can go to jail for extended periods of time and things like this. Those kind of things, you know, you might need to drastically cut and, and move away from. And if you can, go for it. But if you're just doing something like maybe you're you're selling animals, maybe you're breeding dogs and this is something that you've been doing for the last 20 years and this is what's been sustaining your life with your family and you've built your whole life and your income and your expenses around this, you're not going to be able to drastically change that. So you need to kind of gradually move into something that can improve your decision-making and not cause harm in the world. And doing that gradually, the mind's going to be more willing to do that because the mind doesn't like impermanence. You know, one of the ways to describe that the mind craves permanence and that's what causes discontentedness as part of that Four Noble Truths, another way to say that is the unenlightened mind does not like impermanence. It doesn't like change. So where you are making changes do those gradually and the mind will be more willing to shift. And once you make those shifts, they'll be more consistent. They'll be more stable, that the mind will feel more comfortable with that shift to something stable and steady. If you try to make a whole bunch of real quick shifts, the mind usually isn't comfortable with that. So same thing if you're deciding to clean up your food supply and move away from meat towards vegetables. Typically, you do that gradually to allow the body and the mind to adjust to that. Then when you move into that gradually, it'll be a more stable decision as the body can and the mind gradually adjusted to it rather than trying to snap your fingers and make a real quick shift. I was wondering, David, what if we seem to be working in right livelihood, but there are issues perhaps in the supply chain? For instance, we may be selling computers or shoes but at some point in the supply chain, the shoes or computers are being made by child labor, for instance. Is this right livelihood? If you aren't aware of those things happening, if you're just selling a mobile phone, for example, and somewhere along the supply chain, there's child slave labor going on. You're not aware of that. And that's not a conscious decision that you made. Your livelihood is based on your livelihood. It's not based on what other people are doing. So your livelihood and your path to enlightenment isn't based on what other people are doing and the choices that they're making. They're all based on your choices. So if you're not aware that there's child labor involved, your livelihood is still wholesome because you're choosing to sell mobile phones. That's your choice. If somebody else is choosing, even with your knowledge, that they're choosing to use child labor and it's slave labor, at that point, it doesn't come down to your livelihood because your choice is that you're selling mobile phones. What that comes down to is you deciding whether you would like to participate in this venture where someone's using slave labor and where you become aware of it, you can choose to no longer use that factory or use those products, but it's not associated with your 
livelihood, for example. It's all about your decisions of what you're doing. And if you're selling a mobile phone, that's your choice. And the choices that other people make in the factory and they're choosing to employ slave labor, that's their choice. That's not your choice. You mentioned in the book to find something you enjoy that happens to also provide financial support. And you've also mentioned that a bit here. I was wondering if you could expand on the benefits to the mind of finding something that you enjoy in that way compared to perhaps just working a job, even if it's in right livelihood, that we don't enjoy so much. Yeah, it's common for us to move around from career to career, job to job, you know, because no job is permanent because of the universal truth of impermanence. So as we go around from job to job, we're kind of like testing the waters and kind of seeing what makes us tick. You know, what are we really uh, enthused about? What, what really brings us to the point where we feel like, wow, I've got a real purpose here. I'm really helping people in the world and I really enjoy this job that I'm doing. If you have that kind of insight into the mind and what you truly feel is beneficial and what you'd like to do, you're going to enjoy life and life is going to be much more of an enjoyable experience for you. And that peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy is going to be more attainable because you feel that your livelihood and what you're doing, a large portion of your day and your week, you feel like you're really contributing to society. Whereas if you have a job that you're just collecting a paycheck and you really aren't interested in, your mind's going to feel dull. It's going to feel lethargic. You're not really applying yourself. You're not really learning any particular new skills that are helping to improve your career. You're just kind of lackluster, lethargic, complacent, just collecting a paycheck. This isn't going to produce that mind that is at ease that is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because the joy isn't there because you're not really applying yourself in this career. You've just kind of stagnated in your career. So if you're able to find a career or a environment or an employer that you feel more enthused about and that this is more fulfilling for you, then your life's going to feel better about what you're doing. But at the same time, you have to understand that any kind of job or business that you create, there's going to be constant changes in that job. So you can't base your inner feelings on this particular job. But if you have one job is kind of dull, boring, you're not gaining any skills, you're just showing up and clocking in and clocking out every day, that's not going to produce a vibrant mind that has energy and enthusiasm and motivation. So you would like to try to select a job, a career, an employer, or starting a business that you feel enthused about and that this is something that you would really like to do as a way to contribute to the world in a way that really gets you ticking, so to speak. We may be working in jobs that we don't necessarily feel enthusiastic about, but they're also very beneficial for society. That are necessary. Do you feel that we should approach such work with pride and purpose? The pride needs to be eliminated from the mind in order to attain enlightenment. We're going to talk about this in chapter three when we talk about the 10 fetters. If there's pride, that means there's arrogance or conceit there. So there's techniques and teachings to eliminate pride in the mind. So that needs to be 
eliminated. But if you're working in a job that you don't feel good about, but the job is purposeful and is providing some benefit to the world, still at the end of the day, you're not feeling fulfilled because you're not really enthused about the job. So same thing, you know, you might want to look at another option because that particular career or employer or whatever you're involved in, it's not really quite your thing. You know, what you like to get to is there's spoons, there's forks, there's knives, and all of these things have a certain purpose. You can't eat soup with a fork, right? A fork, you just can't eat soup with it. It's just not going to work. So you've got to figure out, are you a spoon? Are you a fork? Are you a knife? What's your real passion in this life? And what is it that you'd really like to do in order to contribute to the world? So if you constantly try to eat soup with a fork, you're going to be frustrated and it's going to lead to madness. So if you're going into a job every day just to collect a paycheck and you're trying to eat soup with a fork, then it's not going to feel fulfilled and it's just going to drag on and on and on. So if you're a fork, find out where people need forks and go be a fork. Or if you're a spoon, find out where people need spoons and go apply yourself in that area and be a spoon and be the best darn spoon you can be. That's the way to, to lead to a, a real fulfilling and meaningful life. We have a question from Marion and Jim regarding right livelihood. And it's in relation to doctors or healthcare workers that prescribe drugs. How does that fit into right livelihood? Yeah, so doctors and healthcare workers that are prescribing medications for the need to address medical issues in the body, those substances aren't for heedlessness, they're for medical purposes. So that's different than providing drugs or intoxicants or substances just to promote this pleasant feelings in the mind. So if you're a physician that's providing pain medication or diabetes medication or cancer medication, these aren't substances that are causing heedlessness, even though it might be working to eliminate pain in the mind. It's for some medical purpose. Now, if that person was, that doctor is writing prescriptions on the side in order to let people kind of shoot up oxycodone or something like that, now that's where their actions are causing them problems. So the livelihood of being a doctor is purified, but now their actions of stealing and scheming and pursuing gain with gain, that's where they're running into problems. So in a situation where a doctor is practicing as a doctor, that's a right livelihood. But if their speech and their actions are such that they're stealing or they're uh, doing some corrupt things on the side, this is where their speech and actions are involved and all the factors of the path aren't purified and they're causing harm in the world and harm can come to them. So the livelihood is all about the position or the role that you're fulfilling in society, where then as that role of a doctor or a nurse, if we're stealing medications and selling those on the street, that's wrong action. Those are two separate things. Marion and Jim also had a question regarding right action. They asked, coffee, sugar, and nicotine are all mind-altering, right? Caffeine, yes. Caffeine will produce excitement in the mind. It's a stimulant. What you'll notice is if you move off of caffeine, the mind will become more clear. We'll talk about this when we get to the five precepts. We'll talk about that in more detail. 
Sugar does produce some stimulating effects. Sugar can usually be taken in moderation and you can find that middle because sugar is also helpful to the body as well. It's when we go into excess and we're not practicing the middle way that sugar can be problematic. That's all the questions we have for now, David. Okay, so just kind of a last thing to really summarize what we're talking about today and kind of give you something that you can kind of walk away with and just summarize version is right speech is all about not causing harm through our verbal conduct, ensuring that all communication, verbal, text, chat, post, emails, and all the other things are without harm. If you're practicing in a way with the five factors of well-spoken speech and all the other teachings that you're gonna learn in this program and others from the Buddha, then you're purifying your speech and you're gonna have to work at that. It's gonna take time. You're gonna take five steps forward and two back. You're gonna find it harder to practice right speech and relationships where there's a lot of craving, desire, attachment. So for like your life partner or your children or people that you're really attached to, you're gonna find it really difficult to practice right speech. So the more that you eliminate those attachments as part of right view, you'll find that right speech will actually become easier. But you're still gonna have to work at it and it's gonna take time. So ensuring that we're not causing harm through our speech is really important because then you'll see that you'll be able to conduct life with ease and create bara me, where the one who people listen to. Then right action is all about not causing harm in our bodily actions because if we cause harm through our bodily actions, then that harm's gonna come back to us. So ensuring all your actions are purified. So even though the Buddha didn't say, you know, don't, walk up to someone and punch them in the face or you know don't kick somebody in the leg we know that if we understand the summarized version of right action that we're ensuring that we're not causing harm through any of our bodily actions then you will be very observant over your bodily actions and make sure you don't cause harm with those and same thing with right livelihood as long as you're not practicing one of those five wrong livelihoods then your livelihood is already purified. You kind of got that step in the bag. So if you're a cashier or a food server, a salesperson or a, a mental health worker or a doctor, a nurse, a lawyer, a sanitation worker, an engineer, an accountant, all of these different professions, those are all right livelihoods because you're not causing harm because it's not one of those five wrong livelihoods. So if you've got that one in the bag, it's just a matter of making sure you feel fulfilled at your job and that you're not just collecting a paycheck, but you're actually applying your time, effort, energy, and resources to making sure that you're actively contributing to society through your livelihood. So that's what I had to share with you guys today in terms of these teachings. And next week, we're going to be discussing mental discipline. We're going to be in that upper part of the Eightfold Path where we're talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And by the end of next class, you will have seen the entire Path to Enlightenment in its totality in a summarized version. And while you won't be enlightened by that point and you won't have seen the entire path because there's a lot of individual details that you need to understand, by the end of next class, you will at least kind of had an overview of what the path looks like. And then we're gonna spend the whole rest of this program for the next seven months filling in and really making sure we pull back the layers piece by piece so that you can see 
the real depth of the Buddhist teachings, and then where you identify areas that you would like to improve in your life practice, you can do that. And always remember that none of this is based on belief, that you can take what I shared with you today, you can compare that and contrast that to your life in the past and see where situations where you weren't practicing these teachings, it didn't turn out well for you. In places where you were practicing these teachings, it did turn out well for you. So it's wonderful that you guys have decided to learn. And this is now the second Sunday that we're teaching. Next Sunday, we'll kind of wrap up this three-part series. And then we'll move on to other content after that and deepening your understanding and your wisdom around this eightfold path, this path to enlightenment. This Wednesday, we're going to be focusing on breathing mindfulness meditation. It's going to be the second part of our four-part series. And breathing mindfulness meditation is utterly important for your mental discipline and practicing all the rest of these teachings. For example, if you aspire to practice right speech in those five factors of well-spoken speech, but your mind is really busy and overactive, you wouldn't be able to practice right speech. So one of the things that meditation is doing for you, even though it's part of the mental discipline, is it's helping you to practice right speech, for example, because it's slowing the mind down, it's helping you to think through your decisions and make wise choices related to your speech or your actions and things like this. So while this path has eight individual distinct steps, all of these steps are actually working together. And while this is eight different unique steps, you're not mastering one before you move on to the next. You're actually learning all of them and you're implementing all of them at the same time. Essentially what it is, is you've got all these eight dials across your screen, for example, and you're kind of refining each dial where when I share these teachings from the Buddha about right speech, you're like, yeah, I do speak kind of harsh to my life partner and my kids. Oh, okay, I need to improve that. Let me dial that in a little bit better over the coming months, right? Let me dial that in. Oh, yeah, I am kind of, you know, not really practicing right speech or right livelihood here the best way. Let me dial those in. So what you do is these eight steps is as you're learning about them, you kind of dial them in closer and closer, and it's going to take you time to come up to that, right? And it's not going to be this linear progression towards enlightenment. You're going to have these backward steps, and that's very normal. Before we end today's class, I would like to just pause and see if there's any remaining questions about anything we've discussed today or in our last class that you guys would like to get help with. I had one final question, David. You mentioned in the book in regards to right speech to apologize, aim to improve, and then move on applying effort to improve in each and every conversation in the times that we err in regards to right speech. Is this just a reminder that we will err going forward and to not feel guilt and to just see all of our life experiences as learning experiences on this path, essentially? Yeah, that's a big part of it. There's two things there. So what James is talking about is now that you know right speech and you've at least learned it intellectually, you're probably going to do some more reflection on that and you're going to start practicing it. And as you do, you're going to trip over your feet. You're going to make mistakes and nobody's coming to punish you. It's just what happens as part of ramping up your practice. Well, as that's happening and you notice that you were harsh with somebody and you didn't speak gently 
or you weren't speaking with a mind of loving kindness, where you notice that and you observe that and you aim to improve, it makes sense for you to apologize to the people that you spoke that way with. What it does is, yes, it acknowledges for you that you're not going to be perfect from this point forward and you do need to improve your conduct. It helps you to relieve that guilt and that shame that might set into the mind or even fear that, yeah, you are going to make some mistakes along the way because you can't be perfect. The only individual who's truly perfect is a Buddha. They're fully perfectly enlightened. Enlightened beings are, should be practicing pretty much perfection. They're not ever going to speak harshly. They're going to be speaking in these same ways as these five factors. But it takes you time to build up to that. So relieve yourself of any guilt or shame or fear. Understand that mistakes and tripping over your feet is part of the learning process. That's where the wisdom starts to get cultivated. But also the other reason why you're apologizing is you're working to clean up your karma. One of the things you're doing is now that you have landed and you decided to start practicing this path, when you look behind you, you've been knocking down trees and kind of, you know, burning up the forest a little bit. So you've got some work to kind of clean things up. Well, while you're in the process of ramping up your practice and practicing in more wholesome ways, you're going to still knock down some trees and you're going to still start some fires. And you would like to kind of clean that up as best as possible. So as you're progressing on this path and you realize that you maybe spoke harsh or you spoke without a mind of loving kindness, you can kind of clean that up and put out the fire by apologizing to your life partner or apologizing to your children. Even if they were yelling at you, it's always wise to go back and the people that are in your life now when you are making mistakes or where you're not practicing these teachings is to apologize and say sorry that's a way for you to acknowledge that yes you need to work on your practice but it's also a way to keep your gamma clean that if you just continue to go around knocking down trees and burning up the forest you're going to create problems in your life and more and more relationships are going to be strained and difficult but if where you're noticing your not able to practice these teachings to perfection because you're not going to be able to where you notice that as you're progressing and ramping up your practice don't feel hesitant to actually say sorry and apologize to people not only does it keep your gamma clean and keeps your relationships wholesome and healthy but it also helps you eliminate some ego which we're going to talk about in chapter 16 of this program the ego is a big big problem in, in the human mind and by you apologizing to people and acknowledging that you have maybe not practiced well, this can actually help to eliminate conceit, arrogance, and the ego. And this will be really helpful for your mind. So even if somebody else was yelling at you for 20 minutes and then you were sitting there the whole time and then the last minute you yelled at them and you're just like 1% wrong, so to speak, or 1% deficient in your practice, apologize for that because this is about your practice it's not about the other person it's about your practice so this will help you to keep your gamma clean and it will help you to eliminate conceit and arrogance and ego thank you david that seems to be all the questions we have for today all right well i will just say goodbye to all of you guys thank you for joining today's class i appreciate that you're interested in learning and practicing the teachings of the buddha as I mentioned, next Sunday, we're going to be in that next part of this class.
class where it's going to be part three that we're going to be studying the mental discipline and how to train the mind through this discipline so that we can control the mind instead of the mind controlling us i'm going to teach you next week about how you can control the mind through mental discipline and then on wednesday we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation helping you deepen your practice because that's a very important component as you're progressing on this path to build up that practice so i'll see you either wednesday or next sunday in the meantime have a wonderful rest of your day we'll see you then thank you for listening to this podcast to provide support for this podcast visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha to access more teachings visit buddhadailywisdom.com there you will discover a full range of courses retreats and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.